chapter 4, as we've been seeing, uh, Paul has set out since chapter 1 to prove mainly two things. One, that all people everywhere, regardless of how much of God's law they're aware of, are sinners because all human beings, all of us, me included, are idolaters, sinners, and we have no ability to save ourselves. That's the first thing he's wanted to prove. Secondly, that the gospel he preaches of being put into a right relationship with God through faith apart from the law is actually the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, not a departure from them. So chapter 4 this morning is the textual proof, if you will, of how correct Paul's way of interpreting the Old Testament really is. What matters when it comes to salvation is what God counts as righteous. Nobody else. That very word, count, implies that we lack something and we lack His righteousness, which means we can't put ourselves into a right relationship with Him. We have to be credited or have something credited to us that we don't have and don't possess and can't work up or produce in order for Him to put us in a right relationship with Him. And it can't be alone. Because if we had what we needed to begin with or could get it, we wouldn't need to have anything counted to us on our behalf. We need salvation, justification, being put into a right relationship with God. We need that to be a grant. We need it to be grace. And since God is the one counting, the fact that we are put into a right relationship with Him through faith alone is the most wonderful news in the universe. So let me pray and we'll begin. Our Father, we have Your Word open this morning before us. God, You reign over us by Your Word. You called us to life. You called us to new life by Your Spirit in the Gospel. And Father, You continue to speak this same Word to us this morning. And so, Father, I ask that You would help me preach it clearly. I pray that all would be able to understand. I pray that all would be able to hear and by hearing believe by grace through faith in Your Word. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Verses 1-8 through of Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's one of the most beautiful and important verses in the entire Bible. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Paul has been dialoguing with an invisible opponent, a stand-in for all his opponents in Rome now for three chapters to prove his point. And the question he's answering now is, all right, Paul, just how did Abraham find favor with God then? If you're saying God didn't choose him or choose anybody because they're righteous, since no one is righteous, how did Abraham find favor with God? And Paul takes the opponent 
back to Genesis chapters 12 through 18 in particular. This is where the promises were first given to Abraham. And the fulfillment of those promises began when Abraham was visited, if you remember, by three visitors in the heat of the day and was so bold as to conclude that he'd found favor with the Lord. Abraham stands at the very beginning of the history of Israel as the people through whom God had chosen to work out his plan of salvation in the world. When the three visitors appear in Genesis 18, does Abraham look like a man who has something of which he could boast? Does he look like a great man, a righteous man? What did Abraham gain from God because of his flesh, because of the way he was? Interestingly, in Genesis 15, when the Lord speaks to Abraham, the first thing the Lord says to Abraham is, fear not. Now, you would think that if a person had something to boast about, believed they were in a right standing with God, fear is not what they would feel. But Abraham fears God. Abraham needs comforted by God. When God visits Abraham, Abraham is afraid. And if you'll notice in Scripture, that's just like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the Virgin Mary and John on Patmos will be there, afraid. They don't understand. In each of these cases, the person being visited is instantly aware of his or her unworthiness to stand before God. That's the first thing that comes out of a human being when God confronts them. So God's first words are comforting grace to Abraham. No, 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 fear not. I can tell you're afraid. Don't be afraid. God's visitation of Abraham was gracious. He found favor, grace in God's eyes in Genesis 18, 3. Why? To explain this text, Paul puts two passages side by side in verses 3 through 8 from the Old Testament. Genesis 15, 6 and Psalm 32, 1 through 2. Meaning, by the way, that these two verses or texts belong together. They're saying the same thing in regards to the word count, or as you may see, reckon in your translation. The counting of faith as a right relationship with God, as righteousness in verse 5, commenting on Genesis 15:6, is the same as not counting or forgiving, forgiving, covering sins, here in verses 6 through 8, from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, I believe. The psalm doesn't identify any human work involved in bringing about the forgiveness of sins. And Genesis simply says that Abraham believed God. That's it. And it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul is making the point in these first eight verses about the non-active right, nature of believing versus the human active act of working. Believing versus working. They do not go together. Never shall they meet, right, for justification. In verse 2, if Abraham had done something or been something to make God visit him and favor him and bless him, he would have something to boast about, but not before God. People, the flesh, could be very impressed with Abraham, but that's not why God blessed him. The Scripture says in Genesis 15, 6, again, that Abraham believed God and that it was counted to him as Righteousness. God does not view then simply believing in his promise to save as a work that can be performed that he owes us for doing. Faith doesn't come from within us. 
read the first three chapters of Romans. Where would faith come from in a people that are like this? Where is the good in man? This inherent good that apparently we all have. Where would you find it in the first three chapters of Romans? If the blessing that Abraham got from God was for his works, then it's not the promise or grace that makes one right with God. It's the work one has done. This would mean God counts our works towards our account as credit to our account. And at the end of all things, if there's enough, if we're good enough, not perfect, but if we're good enough, then we'll be justified. But remember chapter 3, verse 24, right? We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here in verse 4, it's clear again. The wages of salvation... The benefit and reward of salvation are counted to us as a gift we receive, not as something we had earned and were therefore owed. And I've used this example before. When you get your paycheck, you do not, I'm going to assume, go to your boss and thank him or her for your paycheck. Why? Because it wasn't a gift. You earned it. You worked for it. They owe it to you. So when you get what you're owed, you don't go to the person and say, thank you so much for your grace. No, no, no. You better give me my money, right? That's different. I worked for it. I've earned it. It's owed to me. Salvation is nothing like this. And what God counts as righteous is nothing like this. He's not impressed. He sent his son, right? That, that, that's not the way justification works. If faith, well, actually, now notice verse 5 here. Look at this. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul tells us, this is very important, that the reason faith saves a person is because of its object. Its object is him who justifies the ungodly. That's why faith saves. It's not this merit-worthy thing in us. It's actually completely looking away from us. If faith is faith, it's empty. It has nothing, it does nothing, it is nothing. It doesn't earn anything, it's pure desperation. It's put to us in the text as the total opposite of a work or of merit or of something that God owes us for if he sees it in us. There's no mixture, there's no contribution of even something good in me, anything that led to faith and then God justified me. No, God justifies the one who does not work, but believes. That's a very clear categorical difference. I will not justify the one who works. I will justify and do justify the one who believes. That is faith. And faith is counted as righteous. By whom? Who is doing the counting in salvation? Of course, beloved, God is. All Abraham is doing in Genesis is running around, if you remember, trying to make a meal for these three visitors who we know is the incarnate God here in some sense. And by the way, it's a completely inadequate meal. You don't feed mutton to God incarnate. Right? It's not an impressive dinner. And it is the one who fears to be in the presence of the Lord, who knows he has no business with God visiting him and eating with him, that realizes, oh, I've found favor in his eyes. That'd be the only way he could be here and not destroying me. The posture of humble trust is what receives grace. If we want to be placed into a right relationship with God, we must stop working. 
I say that even to Christians who are, are still trying so hard to earn or to merit the gift of salvation. It, those who try to work are not justified. Those who believe are justified. Be at peace. Stop working. Simply believe the truth about Jesus. Abraham believed God. He believed his promise. And God counted that to him as righteousness. That's what God thinks is righteous. You believe in him for salvation. This is what is righteous in the eyes of Almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth. To believe only he can make me right with him. God counts the empty begging hands of the heart that can give nothing as righteousness if that faith is by itself with no hint of working or contributing attached to it. That is the faith that puts us in a right relationship with God. Abraham heard a word of promise, and in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, he believed it. Faith comes only into being where the word of God's promise is proclaimed. That's what Paul will tell us in Romans 10:17. The God in whom Abraham trusted is the God who justifies the ungodly. That's what he does. If Abraham had thought of God as something else then, right? If he had thought of God as this deity that you appease with works and ceremonies and rituals, he wouldn't have trusted him, right? He would have went to work for him. He would have tried to uh, have tried to boast to him and prove his worth. But only the God who justifies can be the object of our trust. Jonathan Grothy writes that only the ungodly can believe in the true God. This is the whole essence, by the way, of Paul's um, theology of salvation you get from him in the Scripture. Ernst Kaysman says this, If the nature of faith is non-achievement, in verse 5, then faith as a consequence has to do with him who makes the ungodly righteous. And faith is not our piety. right? And our piety is not faith. In other words, it's not our walk with the Lord that saves us. The life of good works that believers are called to live and commanded to live and are to produce good works. That life of good works is for the benefit now of our neighbors. All the good hard work that we should expend doing right is not for God to save us or be impressed with us. That's been satisfied for us in Christ. We do it for the benefit and help and love of our neighbor, which includes our enemies. Beloved, that's who we're working for and striving for that we might take care of and love one another. God is satisfied with us in Christ. There are two kinds of righteousness for us, right? There's the passive righteousness that we receive from God, counted to us as a gift. That's how we're made right with him and stand always right with him. It never changes. And then there's our active righteousness, the good works we do because we have been saved and the Holy Spirit has been placed in us that are for the benefit of others since our ticket is paid for. We can give everything we have away to others and we are commanded because this is what Christ has done. This is what he showed us. Faith in Paul's words is not the things we are doing. Or I'm sorry, I, I emphasize that wrong. Faith in Paul's words is not the things we're doing to prove we're worthy of or have earned salvation. Faith is the result of being reduced to nothing so that God's justifying grace might be received with my empty hands. Piety and morality, that can be accomplished by anyone 
without the power of the Holy Spirit. Anybody can be pious. Anybody can be moral. Talked about this before. There are other religions and even false religions where uh, the, the people are very moral and very pious and dedicated to their faith. And we, we, we don't deny that, but the human will can produce what it believes it should be paid for. We can't produce saving faith. We need to receive a gift from God. And the reception of that is hearing the promise and believing it. It's only to the one who does not work what, but believes, which again, believing is the polar opposite of working to achieve. That's the, the, the contrast Paul is setting up for us here in Romans 4. It's the one who does not work but believes that God counts such faith as righteousness. Only the ungodly can be declared righteous. And the only way to be saved is to be declared righteous by God. Paul really means what he says here. God doesn't justify the pious. God doesn't justify the loyal or the moral. God justifies the ungodly. Do you qualify? I do. Look at verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? This is the sign of the covenant. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. That's All these sentences are packed into that little paragraph here. Paul's flow of thought so far is this. In verses 1 to 8, he made the important point that the righteousness which is by faith involves absolutely no human achievement whatsoever, which means faith is faith in this God who justifies the ungodly. That's what makes it worthwhile. So Paul carries forward now, very naturally into verses 9 and 12, what the explanation of Genesis 15 and Psalm 32 means, those texts he just referenced, for the relationship between Jewish and Gentile Christians, which is what the major issue is in Rome. What does it mean for the relationship between Jews and Gentiles that faith is counted as righteousness, not works? What, is, what does that mean, right, for, for how Jewish and Gentile Christians would, would get along and how they would see each other? Showing that, in fact, what he's going to do here is that the Old Testament fully supports the position Paul's gospel points to. To make the second important point from Genesis 15 through 17 that he's been referencing or the context where he's talking here, Paul now turns from the question of why Abraham found favor with God because faith is counted as righteousness to the issue of how his faith was counted to him as righteousness. When we look at Genesis 15 through 17, where all the promises came to him, we discover that Abraham wasn't circumcised yet when God pronounced He's in a right relationship with him by grace through faith. Abraham hasn't even been circumcised. He's still an uncircumcised pagan. 
This means that uncircumcised Gentile Christians, non-Jews, as well as believing Jews, those Gentile Christians, even though they aren't circumcised, don't have the sign of the old covenant on them, would also be children of Abraham by following in his footsteps of faith. In other words, they did what Abraham did to be counted righteous. They believed. That's it. It didn't matter then what one's physical descent was or whether one decided to be circumcised in the question of being put into a right relationship with God. So then, justification by grace through faith, which we know from Psalm 32 is the same as the forgiveness of sins, had been proclaimed to Abraham and said about Abraham before he was given circumcision as a sign and seal of the covenant with God that they were his people. Now circumcision in the Bible, when you come to Romans 4, is finally put into its proper perspective. It is not a cause of grace. God doesn't see that and give grace to you. And it's not necessary for the forgiveness of sins. You don't have to have that done to you. Secondly, Abraham was counted as righteous by God while he believed, even when he was uncircumcised, and he continued in a right relationship with God while believing after being circumcised. This makes Abraham, Paul is saying, the man of faith, the father of all those of faith, uncircumcised and circumcised people, Jews and Gentiles in his context. Circumcision was not a uh, the common practice that it is today, right? It was a very distinct thing for the most part in the world to mark out that you were a Jew, you were a descendant of Abraham. And of course, Abraham is the Jew's forefather according to the flesh, in terms of physical descendants, absolutely. But that doesn't have any benefit anymore in circumcision or in being called a Jew in terms of righteousness and salvation. So these verses legitimize, including Gentiles, in this all who are counted as being in a right relationship to God through faith according to the Old Testament, is what Abraham is saying. Paul's argument has been that all have sinned, Jews and Gentiles, and that this one gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Jew or Gentile. When Abraham was counted righteous by God through faith, while he was still uncircumcised, it proved that such a thing is possible. It's happened before. In fact, it's in the DNA of who God's people are. That's how it started. An uncircumcised man from southern Iraq in modern terms was counted by God as righteous and his own son. This also reinforces chapter 2, verses 25 through 29, if you remember, which spoke about how apart from the perfect keeping of the law, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, circumcision and being named a Jew are now, in light of Christ's coming, purely outward realities. The sign has passed away because the substance has come. And Paul will go on to show later in Ephesians 2.15 that the Old Testament testifies to the creation of Jewish and Gentile believers as one new man in Christ, one being reconciled to one another because they've been declared to be in a right relationship with God, justified by the same means, one means, faith in Jesus Christ. Romans is thick, right? Sometimes you have to dig through here. So Paul's gospel that creates this fellowship of Jewish Christians with uncircumcised Gentile Christians, as verse 31 in chapter 3 has already told us, makes the Torah, the law, the instruction of God stand. It's not compromised or broken. Now, 
In the last part of chapter 4, Paul continues to argue the same point, but he does it by properly interpreting for us a second passage from Genesis that concerns Abraham as this father of many nations. What does that mean in his seed? So let's pick it up in verse 13. For the promise of Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Also meaning, among other things, nobody will keep it. It won't come to pass. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it, the the promise coming true, depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. That's how you get saved. I'm as good as dead, God. Help me. Since he was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, you're going to have tons of children. I'm a hundred, right? Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, with the word for... In verse 13, Paul is explaining verse 12. And he's saying, The giving and the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham and to his seed, that he would be heir of the world, is not the result or consequence of a law relationship to God in which Abraham remained faithful and didn't break anything and performed works that earned the promise coming true for him. Rather, that promise being fulfilled is a result of the fact that Abraham is in a right relationship with God already through faith. And in that relationship, what is Abraham? Abraham is an an ungodly, empty-handed, doubting beggar. right? That's what Abraham is in this relationship. And remained, except for a few instances in his life where he showed that he did have this faith. Verse 14 then supports verse 13 again with that word for, by basically saying, if living in relationship to God under law has anything to do with inheriting the world as promised, then you can throw out the words faith and promise. They don't mean anything. It's it's payment. It's what is due if that's the reason why the promise comes true, that he obeyed. The way of law and the way of faith are polar opposites in justification. So the word for at the beginning of verse 15 now introduces two sides of one coin that both support verse 14. The first part of verse 15 says that the end result of the work of the law is wrath that's poured out on all unrighteousness, which is where a law relationship with God will inevitably end. Ask the Israelites. We can't keep God's law. 
So the but in the second part of verse 15 flips to the other side of this coin. In the relationship of promise, there is no law, no transgression, and therefore no wrath. Right? Meaning it's not based on these things. And this is the relationship God and Abraham are in. in Genesis 12 through 18. Now in verse 16, that's why, or therefore, we read that, which is going to explain verses 14 and 15, right? Since law and promise are opposites, and no one can be the heir of promise through the law, one is only going to be the heir of the promise through faith. And if it's by faith, then it's by grace. It has to stand on grace in order for the promise to stand and to be guaranteed. And since the promise rests on the grace of God and not the work of Abraham, the promise is therefore firm to all the seed of Abraham. But what seed is the seed of Abraham? As Paul is given to reveal all through the New Testament, the seed here, as it is elsewhere, now that we understand the promise, all believers in Christ, those of faith, are the children of Abraham. In Galatians, this is the seed, all believers in Christ. Abraham is the father of that nation, from many nations, all those of faith, his seed according to the promise. The latter part of verse 16, on into verse 18, expands on Abraham as a believer and the father of all, because he's a believer, because he's the original man of faith, reinforcing the fact that this promise is firm to all who are like him, all believers. Verses 16 and 17 characterize Abraham as the father of all Christian believers, which is what Genesis Scripture confirmed in Genesis 17.5. This God, in verse 17, is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist in us, like faith. When God created the world out of nothing, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he was showing us how we were going to be saved when inside of us was only the void and darkness and deadness of Romans 1 through 3. Let there be light. And what God says happens. It He creates with his word out of nothing. That's how I'm a Christian today. That's how you're a Christian today. God created faith in me where there was nothing. It didn't exist. Nothing good existed. He counted me as righteous. It's a gift to us. It stands on grace. This God in verse 17 gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is what Abraham believed against hope. When he looked at himself being 100 years old, he hasn't fathered any children. His wife is barren. She can't have children. Right? So, And God says, I'll make you the father of many nations. Couldn't you have showed up when I was 30? When I was 20? Right? No. There's a reason God doesn't do things like that. I'm going to show up when you'll be able to realize... Okay, well, I'm not going to do this. You're going to have to do one of your magic things. I can't, right? There was in Abraham's faith a hope against hope. I love that. That His faith included the weakness of his flesh. He had to hope against hope. He had to hope against what he knew better. He had to hope against reality, didn't he? What's real is my body can't do this. Her body has never been able to do this. But God said it, so, and I, I found favor with him. He's eating with me, so 
He had to tell himself the promise was true. He had to keep telling himself the promise was true. Beloved, that's how you endure. Right? It, it, it doesn't matter what I see. God said it. He promised it. He promised it. He promised it. That he, in fact, because the God in whom he believed gave life to the dead and calls in things that don't exist into existence, should become the father of many nations as he had been told in verse 18, so shall your offspring be. That's what Abraham believed against hope. Verse 19, again, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Abraham's faith put him into a right relationship with God precisely because it had nothing of worth in it. That's faith, realizing that. I, 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 I can't do what you command. I, I, I can't do this. I, I, can't, I can't believe. Help me. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's faith. That's faith. When you are struggling and that's your prayer, that is faith. Lord, I believe, but you have to help my unbelief. There is where the promise is. He knew that he was as good as dead. He, he, Sarah was barren. How are we going to have a child? What, what did Abraham believe? With us, it is impossible. But with you, it will be done. And Abraham was justified. My hope for salvation is this. I can't do it. That's all my hope. It's not on me. It's on him. Abraham's faith, if you'll notice, was not based on visible or reasonable indicators. What he looked at showed him, oh, I have nothing to contribute to this. Abraham did not believe that he could do this, that he could raise up a generation that God would bless. No, Abraham believed, in spite of the fact that he could do none of that or contribute to it in any way, God could and God would because he had promised, and he, this God, justifies the ungodly, and he is faithful. He rested even in the face of all the evidence to the contrary on the God whose word of promise he had heard, as it was once said so beautifully. When I look at myself, I do not see how I could be saved. But when I look at Christ, I do not see how I could be lost. That belief is the faith that puts us in a a right relationship with God and nothing else. Paul isn't talking yet about the works that we do because we've been made new and made right with God. He's hammering in on what saves a person in light of our rampant sinfulness. What are the implications of that biblically? How do we read our Bibles now that Christ has come? What does it mean for identification in the family of God? How does one attain that, especially Gentiles, non-Jewish people? Verses 19 through 21 reiterate that Abraham's faith was based on hope against hope in the God who raises the dead. Beloved, that, that helps us realize this morning that Abraham believed with the same faith in the same God as you and I do. And that is why he is the father of many nations, because he is the father of all believers in Jesus Christ. Faith is described in Scripture by describing the God in which faith trusts. We pick it up in verse 23 now. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead 
Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. So in other words, you see what Paul is doing here. All this stuff applies to Christians, to you and me, and our unity with Abraham in his faith. This is what Paul is doing in verses 23 to 25, right? All this has also been written for our sakes. The readers, past and by the Spirit, present, future, in the living and active, unchanging Word of God. All who believe, all who, like Abraham, looked at the evidence and said, I don't, there's no way I can do this. There's no way I can live up to your standard. There's no way I can keep what you're telling me to do. My only hope is that you justify people like that. These are the children of Abraham. You and me. And when God wrote things like it was counted to him, he was doing that looking at us. All the righteousness you need to stand justified before God and in a right relationship with him has been counted to you and to me because we didn't have it. Not an ounce of it. I stand before God justified and righteous because Christ has made me righteous, counted to me as a gift what I could never work and never earn. That wasn't only written for Abraham's sake so that he would have peace. It was written for our sakes also, for the sake of this church in Rome, these congregations where there's this rift between Jewish and Gentile Christians over whether or not the Gentile Christians really belong. You're not circumcised. You don't follow the law. You're not, you don't have the standing that we do and all the stuff that went along with that. God wanted us to know that when any human being is put into a right relationship with God, it's because God has counted us righteous for believing in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. We believe what Abraham did when we look at Jesus. This God raises from the dead. This God called faith into existence in me, where only sin and idolatry existed. We know that from verse 17, and that is how I'm made right with him. This is my assurance. We needed Jesus to do two things for us. Right? Two things for us. And verse 25 tells us that he has. We needed his perfect life of righteousness to be offered up to God as a sacrifice to redeem us from our sins. The text says he was delivered up for our trespasses. That takes care of sin. And we needed Jesus to be vindicated by God as perfect by raising him from the death he did not deserve but died because of us. For by the counting of His righteousness to us, we would be made righteous in God's sight. And we read that He was raised for our justification. Both things that we needed have been provided. The whole thrust of this section has been to continue to show from the Old Testament that the Old Testament proclaims faith. It's a word about faith. Abraham is the father of many nations, but not in a physical sense. For those of faith are the seed of Abraham by virtue of being found in his true seed, the one seed, singular, not plural, Jesus Christ, who was crucified for our sins 
and raised for our righteousness. Abraham is not considered the great father because he was given a law and kept it. And so we look up to him like that. His fatherhood is as the one who trusted in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the family business. That's what the children of Abraham do. They look to God and believe that he will count them as righteous and keep his word. That is faith. That's all you have to have this morning to be saved is to believe that word. Beloved, we are being completely biblical this morning when we say that Abraham is our father. We are his children. He had faith in the coming Christ. You and I have faith in the resurrected Christ. Salvation is not the result of God counting our goodness as worthy. Salvation is the result of God not counting our sin against us, but instead counting His Son's righteousness for us. Yes, God is counting the good and the bad. So justification by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the best news in the universe. There is no other way to be in a right relationship with God than to have Him count His Son's righteousness as our own. And in so doing, forgive us of all our sins. Please receive this. Receive this. It is the truth. And not because Tony Romano says so. Because God says so. Believe Him. Look to Him. When you look at yourself, you will not find what you need to believe that you are justified. And if you do, you're in double the trouble. Ungodly one. Our God justifies the ungodly. Come to Him. He will not turn you away. He will not turn you away. The more you bring with you, the more His grace shines in forgiving you. So come to Christ. Receive Christ. And Christian, rest in Christ. You are righteous before God. You are justified because of Christ. Let that word penetrate all the doubt and fear and unbelief and desire to work that still remains in you. He justifies the ungodly.